Well, as we come to Psalm 107 tonight, I find that it is a fascinating piece of good luck that our passage has been referred to as the Pilgrim Psalm. So it ties in so well with our message this morning. Am I allowed to use the word luck? We can't. Oh, but, all right. Birthday girl says no. Can't use the word luck. Calvin, I think, used that word. But in a, so I think I'm in good company. Why, why would this be called the Pilgrim Psalm? Well, because of each of these four snapshots that we have here, these befell the pilgrims who landed here in 1620 in their journey along the way to this new world. Wandering and homelessness is highlighted here in the first uh, set. And that's what the pilgrims went through. They could not find a place to settle. They went to Holland. Uh, there was some accommodation there, but for what they had several reasons why they did not want to stay there. My guess is that they didn't care for wooden shoes. And then facing darkness in prison. That's in the next vignette. Uh, the the uh, pilgrims were persecuted. They were fined. They were arrested because of the stance that they took against the um, Church of England. You understand the Puritan movement was, a, was a, a movement within the established church in England. And they were trying to reform the church from within. And so men like Perkins and Ames, uh, they taught this idea that we need to stay within the church and reform the church from within. But not everybody went along with them, including the leaders of the pilgrims who challenged William Ames and said, William, you're wrong. We don't believe that you're going far enough in the reforms, and to stay in here is a dangerous situation. Thirdly, they suffered from sin and from sickness. Death certainly did abide the pilgrims as they made their way to this world, and that first year, as we'll talk about down the road. And of course, they were tempest-tossed upon the high seas. So these four things are found in the, in the journeys of the pilgrims that brought them here to establish this nation under the blessing of God. But certainly this psalm is not just for them. As we've said, it's written most likely after the captivity. This passage reminds every believer that the trials that we face are not unique to ourselves. No strange temptation or trial has befallen you, says Uh, Peter to his hearers. And this passage reminds us that these things do accompany the pilgrim path. How the Bible so well equips us then for all of the needs and all of the contingencies, the exigencies that we face along the way. You are given a whole word from the whole Christ for the whole of life. The salvation which blesses you fully to all eternity that establishes you for everlasting life is certainly able to bless you here in the slim, small time that God gives you in this world. And this is so no matter what you face, no matter how deep the darkness, no matter how high the hardship, no matter how wide the woe, no matter how long the loss, even the flames of persecution and martyrdom cannot quench the Savior's love in and for you. Even there we can know, as that one martyr said as he was was burnt to a char, that Jesus is sweet. But do we give thanks? Do we enjoy the riches of these things that come from above? Each of these rooms um, 
proved to be somewhat of a, of a mini house of the interpreter. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, that's one of the stops along the way. He goes into the house of interpreter and he sees all of these interesting lessons. That's how Bunyan paints the picture for us to understand the Christian life. Well, that's what we're facing here. Here are these different trials that you and I may face. And yet all end on the same note. As these trials come to us, God uses them in our life to, that we would cry out to him, that we would seek his face, that we would pray, and the Lord answers. And when the Lord answers, our response is to be one of praise, one of thanksgiving, one of adoring our God for how good he is to us. The praise that punctuates the psalm hopefully punctuates your life too. This pilgrim psalm then urges us to be thankful at all seasons, to be thankful in the good, in the bad, and in the ugly. It's, it's, I think sometimes we believe, and I think it's re- re- reflected a little bit in the prayer requests from the Ukraine, um, that it's easier to give thanks in prosperity. If things are going well, we can be grateful. We want to have an, an everlasting Thanksgiving and everything goes smoothly. One would think that when things go well, that we are a thankful people. However, in Proverbs chapter 30, we hear a very rare prayer indeed. When the author there says, give me not prosperity. Give me not a $2.4 billion lottery ticket, lest I forget God and say, who is the Lord? So prosperity has its own pitfalls. So, dear ones, as we come to this, let's look at this repeated theme. And tonight, we're just kind of getting our bearings of recognizing what we are to be thanking God for. This refrain that comes to us like wave after wave over and over, repeated in our hearing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is forever, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, verses 8, 15, 21, and 31. And so as we take up this theme tonight, let's begin with the nature of this call upon you. This passage calls upon you to give thanks to the Lord. You are called upon to be thankful, not somebody else. You cannot get a proxy to step in and give thanks on your behalf. You can't hire somebody. You can't get somebody else to step into your place. It is you who are called upon to praise and to give all glory and to thank him. This is a high, glorious summons from the Lord himself. And think about this. What a pleasant part this is of your obedience to God. There are many things in the Christian life that can be feeling like a yoke, can be like a burden. This is difficult to do. But shouldn't praise and thanksgiving be one of the happiest parts, the music of your obedience? You are privileged to enter into the work of the angels above who honor and glorify God in heaven. You are doing that kind of high heavenly angelic work when you thank the Lord and praise him. Men are going to give thanks one way or another. We may thank ourselves like the Pharisee did in the Gospel of Luke, praying to himself in the temple and saying, I thank you, God in heaven, that you haven't made me like other men, like this guy over here. He's thanking himself. 
all render to someone or to something some measure of thanks. For the unbeliever, it seems all the thanksgiving is uh, focused upon the gifts of God rather than the giver of those, those gifts. And that repeatedly happens. God is generous. He causes his son to rise upon the just and the unjust. His rain falls upon the wicked and the good. And what do the wicked and the unjust do with it? They cause those gifts to eclipse the giver. They never follow those gifts back up to the hand that has given these things. And to learn more of him and approach him and love him and trust him. And thus the Lord goes unthanked because the creature becomes the object of thanksgiving rather than the creator. But for the believer, at the heart of his or her gratitude is the grace and the love of God towards me. God has shown love to me. This is my father's attitude in my life. He who is unchanging, he who is all-powerful, has shown such magnificent love and grace to me. The word redemption should thrill our hearts that we were in bondage and he lifted us up and out of the bondage to this present evil age and has set us, set us in heavenly places. We have been saved by a God who is truly a God to us in every way. So understand well, to thank the Lord is a calling. You are called upon to thank God It is not an option open just for some believers only. Even the ungodly are obligated to thank the Lord all the day long. How much more we who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Look at our prelude meditation this morning in your bulletin. This is the the calling that we are to have. Thankfulness is a necessary attitude before such a God as ours. Thus, thankfulness falls under the heading of the first commandment. This is part of having God as your God. This engages the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, and fearing him. Believing him, trusting him, hoping in him, delighting in him, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks to him, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole of our lives. It also falls under the second commandment to worship him with grateful praise, rendering to him the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Prayer and thanksgiving go hand in hand. Such thanksgiving is to be offered to the Lord heartily, fully, extravagantly, and continually. We can see in the light of this definition that ingratitude then, praiselessness, restraining worship, is a common and yet great evil and sin. You read the first chapter to the Romans, and Paul places being ungrateful right there with a failure to glorify God as God. And the flip side of that then is falling into idolatry, of glorifying the creature, making God after these images. Now, this high and this holy and happy calling to praise, to thank the Lord your God all the day long, is rooted in nothing else 
than the one that you praise and thank. A God who shows this word loving kindness repeatedly throughout this wonderful psalm. This is the Old Testament word for grace. This is God's covenant commitment to his people. It is a word that captures all kinds of little elements of of God's loyalty and God's faithfulness and God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's tenderness and God's kindness and God's patience. This word is an effort at encapsulating all those elements. And when we turn to the New Testament, we know that all of that is embodied in Christ, the Son of God made flesh. That's the picture here. Loving kindness. And as this grace, this loyal, loving, merciful, kind disposition in God is repeated, each time it's repeated, it calls forth your praise and your gratitude. When we hear this, almost like a bell, we should respond, we must praise the Lord. The Lord himself, then, is the infinite fountainhead of blessing to you for your praise and for your rejoicing. And this psalm then begins with three qualities that we want to highlight uh, tonight as our second point. It is a a three-stranded cord that we should have wrapped around us that holds us tightly to be a people punctuated with praise. And number one, we find, oh, give thanks for the Lord in verse one, for he is Good. The goodness of God is beyond explication. God is good. Number one, He is good. That is, God is benevolent. God is kind. God is merciful. We can say that God is fatherly. And especially the first person of the Trinity. The goodness of God is so closely tied with that chief New Testament name that was revealed by the Son that God is our Father. We are to pray our Father who is in heaven. We're to trust and to love our Father, and we are to worship Him, praise Him, thank Him. That's the goodness of God tied with that wonderful New Testament name. God is good. He is perfectly good. He is the opposite of evil. He is the opposite of badness. Children, never make the mistake to think that God is ever bad. He is never bad. He is never evil. He is always ever good. His fatherly generosity is unmistakable. And it's not just that he shows goodness or acts with goodness toward all his people, but that he is good, says the text. He is good. Wilhelmus Abrackel, the Dutch theologian, writes, Goodness is the very opposite of harshness, cruelty, gruffness, severity, mercilessness, all of which are far removed from God. How unbecoming it is to have such thoughts about God. Such sinful emotions are found in man. The goodness of God, on the contrary, is the loveliness, the benign character, the sweetness, friendliness, kindness, generosity of God. Godness, our goodness, is the very essence of God's being, even if there were no creature to whom this could be manifested. Matthew Henry says, all who have any knowledge of God and dealings with him will own that he does good and therefore will conclude that he is good. The streams of God's goodness are so numerous and run so full, so strong to all the creatures that we must conclude the fountain that is in himself to be 
inexhaustible. Think about that. Inexhaustible, infinite goodness. We cannot conceive how much good our God does every day. Much less can we conceive how good he is. Let us acknowledge it with admiration and with holy love and thankfulness. Matthew Henry on Psalm 119. So that's the first. Thank him because he is good. Secondly, we've already highlighted this a little bit, his eternal chesed, loving kindness. This is the covenant word associated with the name Yahweh. That's the chief Old Testament name of God. The New Testament chief name, Father. The Old Testament chief name, Jehovah or Yahweh. I am that I am. And along associated with that wonderful name is that he is engaged to you covenantally, to faithfully, loyally, lovingly, kindly, to bless you and to bless you fully by this chesed, his loving kindness. And he is loving to you. He is love to you. He is so eternally. It's not just for his loving kindness, but his loving kindness, which is everlasting, which is unchanging. God loves you now as much as he ever will love you. The unchanging love of God. Nothing can come between you and him. Why give thanks? Praise him always. Because he is love, because he is gracious, because he is filled with mercy to overflowing to you who believe, which is such an amazing thing because of how unlovely we were in our sins. And yet he promises that you cannot be lost. He will always keep you, always bless you. And then thirdly, in verses 2 and 3, on account of his redemption. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from the north and from the south. The word redemption is a a word that's probably a little bit far removed from us, uh, at least a little bit different to us from how it was in the ancient world. Redemption is a market term. Unlike our day, thank God, in the ancient day when you went to the mall, when you went to the store, they would have an aisle that you could go down and you could buy a human being. You could buy a slave. Redemption is the purchase back from the slavery, the bondage of sin. And this was our greatest need. This is man's greatest need to be rescued and to be released from this bondage. And it's a mad bondage, a bondage in sin which we should be turning away with freely, but instead we're addicted to it. We love darkness rather than light. Recognize that no other could have redeemed us and saved us in this way. Neither man nor angel could accomplish such a task. God and God alone would have to work a wonder of wonders to be able to save people who had become children of the devil and worthy of the same wrath that was sure to come upon them. How was God going to do that? He sends his son into the world. Indeed, the gospel salvation uh, by God through his son is the greatest work that he has done ever. Nothing compares to that. Not all of his glorious works of creation, not all of his, the wonders of his providence, but it is giving us such a savior as the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He mightily brought us back, as it were, from the beyond by this work. And how did he do it? By a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. You can see in that, in that phrase a, re- a redemption and a redeemer, both a transcendence, something that is above the power of the creature, but at the same time a closeness, a, a one who becomes one of us, bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, a near kinsman. It's a wonder of wonders that God became man to rescue us who were lost in sin, lost away from God in the world without hope. And all of that done by this God who was righteous and alienated and our enemy. But he so loved the world that he leapt over all boundaries, every obstacle for our miserable lives. What he paid for you and for me is, again, beyond expression. Remember the story that that, um, Spurgeon, one time he was preaching on the death of Christ and just sinking into the depths that Jesus underwent for him. And he said, my heart wants to just break. I want to say, Lord, don't do that. Don't go any further. I'm not worth that. And the depths are so far deeper, even than what we can feel, what our emotions can follow. So praise him. Why? Because he reached us when we were otherwise out of reach. The goodness of God, praise him. The grace of God through the Lord Jesus, praise him. And the third thing here, the goel. That's the Hebrew word for redeemer. It sounds almost like Gorel, doesn't it? It's goel. Get rid of the R's. The goel of God's people, praise him. And that brings us finally to our last point, the importance of so rendering to the Lord highest praise and thanks. This house of the interpreter is not to be treated like a curiosity shop to kind of pass through and just kind of look at the goods and admire them and keep them on the shelf. No, you are the object lessons in each of these uh, vignettes. You are to give thanks to the Lord and to admire him and to adore him. Why? Because all that is at stake in your life. How important. This isn't just an option. This isn't something in a cafeteria line that you're going to, well, maybe I'll praise God or not. There is much at stake here that you need to feel, as it were, to stir you up to be a a man or a woman of praise and gratitude. What is at stake? Well, first of all, God's own glory. He has a propriety in you. He has bought you with the most precious price, which angels desire to look into, the precious blood of his son, the, the, the blood of the lamb. And he is jealous over you, and he is jealous over your praise. He watches and listens how you respond. Remember in the Old Testament how Hezekiah, one of the greatest and best kings in Israel, he was rebuked because he did not render to the Lord according to the gift, according to the mercy. Are we rendering to the Lord proper thanksgiving and praise for who and what he is and does for us? Oh, bless the Lord, my soul, said Isaac Watts nor let his mercies lie forgotten in unthankfulness and without praises die. We let the works of God, as it were, temporarily die when we do not praise him for them. So be a good steward, a good steward of this debt that you owe to the Lord, 
that you will render to him due thanks. Ask God for these things. Much is at stake for his glory. God is pleased with this in you. When you think about it, how little praise and worship and gratitude does he get from this world that he has made? I can't even begin to imagine how how it must feel for God every day to look upon the creation that he has made. I know that he's ordained this and he upholds this, but people are restraining praise and worship, which is his due. There's a reason why uh, C.S. Lewis referred to this world as the silent planet. Because we are not meeting the end for which we were made. How little does he get from this world? And so let us go against that culture. Let us not be conformed to this world and its praiselessness to God, but be transformed through the renewing of our mind. May we sing with the hymn writer, Oh, let my hand forget her skill. My tongue grow silent, cold, and still. This throbbing heart forget to beat if I forget the mercy seat that rejoices my heart. You, the Lord has much at stake. You have much at stake in this as well. You are blessed as you bless him. Giving thanks, do you not find it refreshing? Do you not find it invigorating? Do you not find it transforming? When you walk away from worship, when you walk away from your personal devotions, you thank the Lord. You've expressed your gratitude to him. The opposite happens. Withholding thanks is a narrowing of your soul. It's a stifling of your spirit. It deadens you, you see. One of the most interesting quotes comes from, I think his name is Jeremy Taylor, quoted in uh, John Piper's book, uh, a Christian hedonist book. You can see the cover, but I can't read the cover. Desiring God. And his quote from Jeremy Taylor that the Lord threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And it's being happy in the Lord that is, that is uh, at the heart of, of expressing our gratitude and thanks to him. Oh, dear ones, what a magical power is in praise and thanksgiving. William Law says, if anyone would tell you the shortest, surest way to all happiness, he must tell you to make it a rule to yourself to thank and praise God for everything that happens to you. For it is certain that whatever calamity happens to you, if you thank and praise God for it, you turn it into a blessing. Could you therefore work miracles? You could not do more for yourself than by this thankful spirit. For it heals with a word speaking, and it turns all it touches into happiness. There is much at stake for the Lord in your praise. There is much at stake for you in your praise. There is much at stake for the church in your praise. Both gratitude and ingratitude, both praise and complaining, I'm afraid to tell you, are very contagious. Which would we want to pass on to those who are sitting next to us, behind us and before us in our pews? What do we want to give to our brothers and sisters in the faith around us? Are you encouraging each other by your looking up to your Redeemer as your redemption draws nigh and you're encouraged and thankful and praising? Or are you discouraging the saints with a dour and sour spirit of grumbling? That is one of the burdens of the ministry is to see the saints grumbling and complaining along the way. Remember how God took very seriously the grumblings of those in the wilderness indeed. 
Beware how you use your lips. Are you filling your lips with praise, gratitude, gladitude, as we said last week? Or are they filled with bitterness? The peace of the church is coupled with your giving thanks in everything. A griping and bitter spirit raises the dust. It it blinds the eyes. It causes tears instead of joy in the saints. Much is at stake in the peace and well-being of the church in your gratitude. Much at stake for God, for you, for the church, and then for the world. God is bringing here in this passage a great host from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The picture here of the Jews being brought back from captivity is ultimately a picture of the world being called to the Jerusalem that is above from the four corners of the earth. What does the world see in the Lord's fellowship? Do they not complain of our complaints? What was it the songwriter put? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The saints always mourning instead of rejoicing in the Lord and in his salvation. And when we are found doing that, we confirm them in their coldness and their distant stance from God. When we are cold, when we are cold to him, um, when it comes to thanksgiving, that reverberates to the world outside as they see the children of light acting in that way. So, dear ones, this is, an, this is a, a, evangelistic in how we are grateful. Yours is a high calling. The Lord as good, gracious, and redemptive is the rich source. Much is at stake in every direction. In conclusion, the late R.C. Sproul said that the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. The essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. There is something quite sublime, heavenly, otherworldly, godly, in a humble, grateful spirit, a soul that loves Jesus and lives to praise. You have been called out of darkness, says Peter, into his marvelous light in order that you may declare his praises. God help you to do so with all of your being. Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. May the music of this song reverberate in each of our hearts. O Lord, expand these narrow spirits of ours. Stretch them, we pray. We know that we grow in our love only as we trust in Christ, that as we believe, as we have faith in him, love then is energized in us because we draw near to the very source of love, which is not in us, but in him. And Lord, this is accompanied by thanksgiving accompanied by blessing your wonderful and holy name as supreme for our all in all. What a wonderful Savior you are indeed. May we make that known by our praises to you, by our gratitude. May our lives be regularly punctuated with this uh, joyful praising and thanking of God. Forgive us for bitter attitudes, for grumpiness, for complaining. Fill these lips that you have redeemed with the songs of Zion, and with a thankful joy day by day. Help us to guard our hearts and our mouths for Jesus' sake, that he would be glorified. Amen.